3: Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and today I am in studio with Pierre Chiem. He is the executive chef of Noke by Alara in Lagos, Nigeria, and he's an ambassador for the culinary traditions of Africa, as well as an advocate for responsible tourism. He is the author of Yolele. Recipes from the Heart of Senegal, and also Senegal, Modern Senegalese Recipes from the Source to the Bowl, a James Beard Award nominee for Best International Cookbook. Welcome to the show, Chef Pierre. Thank you. How are you?
4: I'm great.
3: I'm so happy you're here.
4: Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs)
3: We're having a little uh, Vouvray Chardonnay left over from the show before us, which is which is just
4: fine. This is just fine. We're happy
3: to take care of their leftovers. <laughs> no
4: problem for me at all. <laughs>
3: okay, good. Um, so you you are from Dakar in mm-hmm. Senegal. And I know that's a huge part of your life. And actually, it's probably the center of your, your whole sort of culinary world. What was growing up there like for you?
4: Growing up in Dakar was awesome. It was like a childhood without... Um, i would say a dream childhood in a way dakar is like a coastal city it's like a perfect weather year round it never rains until maybe two three months out of the year the rest of the year you expect a beautiful weather for the food part it's, a, it's it, i would say the african foodie city by excellence you know we have a Great, um, great ingredients. You know, we're south of the Sahara Desert, so we have a lot, lots of grains in the in our diet, lots of seafood because of the coastal um, uh, geography, our location, and also lots of so many different influences because Dakar happens to be a, a hub for, and the entrance of Africa is the most western coast of Africa, so we have all these different cultures that arrived in Dakar over, over the centuries. We were colonized by the French. At some point, the Portuguese were there. We have, of a, a late, a Vietnamese community. And all these different communities each brought uh, their culinary experience, their culinary tradition with them. So in Dakar, you have all these great flavors. Growing up in Dakar was a, a bit of all of that, eating great food, having a wonderful weather, great, great ocean, all the time by the beach.
3: So. <laughs> Why would you ever leave? <laughs> it, well, sounds, it does sound like a dream. <laughs>
4: totally is, totally. I go back quite often.
3: But what was the reason you left in the first place?
4: Well, the reason I left was I was a student in the late 80s in Dakar. A yes, physics and chemistry student at the Dakar University, Chakhan Diop University. And that uh, year, we had what you call a an année blanche. An année blanche is a Translates in French as... A, white, the, year. Huh? white year. A white year? White year, yeah. White year, but more like a blank year. The, mm-hmm. the, we had so many, so much strikes that, that year, like uh, the, the school strikes, the student movement is, is pretty vocal in, in Senegal. It's very, everyone is very political. So particularly that year, the, the school movement, the student movement went on strike for um, a, a long amount of time. So the, the government decided to, to cancel the year because we didn't put enough... Uh, Wait, the sc-
3: students went on strike for long enough that the government canceled school. The, the <gasps> government
4: canceled the school. That That's was the like first. every
3: American child's dream.
4: Well, it was a nightmare to us. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sure not to trivialize what you went through, but it, it really was just, a nightmare. I'm, I'm amazed that that can happen.
4: Yeah, me too. I mean, it it was a first. You know, in my childhood, I never had to deal with this, and. Uh, but for, it was a nightmare because we, like, we had to deal with studying over a whole new year, even though, wow. you know. And so, so for me and so for, for a few other uh, classmates of mine and, and Senegalese of that year, we were able to get student visas because we didn't want to start a new year. So we wanted to continue our studies. And my student visa was for a school that's located in... A town called Berea in uh, Ohio. Oh, I know it well. You do? Yeah, I'm
3: from Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> For real?
4: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, that's where I was going.
3: Oh my gosh, it is so different than Senegal.
4: And New York, I bet, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Completely different. It is, in...
3: it is. It's probably diametrically opposite in every way you can imagine. Um, did you go there?
4: Well, I didn't. <laughs> 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 I, I got my visa right? You're
3: not missing much I have <laughs> so, to say So,
4: so I heard, yeah. so I, heard. I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was determined to get there and on my way there on my way to, to, to the United States I had a stop in New York City I decided to visit a friend of mine in New York City who had been here a couple months before me but he was here he was like oh stop by New York stay a couple of weeks before making it to Berea, Ohio and uh, and that's what I did that's what I did.
3: And you stayed.
4: And I'm still here.
3: Oh, that's an amazing story.
4: <laughs> well, did I mean it's a long story, but it's have a, you
3: have you ever just gone to Berea out of curiosity?
4: No, but the funny thing is I came with another friend of mine who was in, 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 in university with me in Dakar and we were going to the same Berea and he went and I stayed. And uh, and we have these two parallel lives. We're still very good friends, and we have, we're have comparing the, the... Does he still the, live in Berea? No, he left Berea a long time ago, after, okay. school, after school. Berea is a place to leave. To leave, he did leave. He left with a woman, he got married, and he got children. Now they live in Switzerland. Oh, good. Uh, they live in Switzerland, but they, you know, they work in, in plastic. You know, he's a chemical engineer, and... You know, he's doing things that I'm happy I'm not doing, but yeah. he seems content with that. You know, I'm, you know, I stayed here because it was a set of circumstances. I lost my money, I got robbed <gasps> three days after I arrived in New York. So and that, you didn't
3: leave after that.
4: I was, <laughs> I was tempted to leave, go back to Senegal. And yeah, I, I
3: would have gotten the first bus out of New York.
4: Well, the first thing that scared me going back to Senegal was to have to face my father and mm. tell him everything <laughs> you saved is gone in three days because. I got robbed. I was in New York. Um, so, so, so I was not going back to face my dad. Luckily, um, the, I was staying in a, in a really crappy hotel in, in, in Times Square. Times Square at the time was not like what you know right now. And um, so in that hotel, there was a Senegalese community And it seemed like all the rejects of New York society in that same hotel. (laughs) So (laughs) convenient. (laughs) Yes. So it so happened that one of my roommates, I think we were like five or six in that room, and one of them happened to work in a restaurant. And he knew I needed a job now because I had no money. And he gave me, he offered me this opportunity. He's like, well, we're looking for a busboy in this restaurant, this restaurant in the West Village in Manhattan at the time called Garvins, And that's where I started And then I'm still... It's like the
3: classic immigrant story. Classic immigrant story, totally. Did you ever... Had you ever worked in a restaurant before that? No,
4: it was my first ever... First job ever. Yeah. First job ever.
3: I'm... (laughs) I'm just so amazed that you are a chef. (laughs) Not amazed that you're a chef, but, like, you really just... It's like that sort of classic, like, American dream story. Like, you just worked your way... Mm-hmm. all the way up. I mean, how did that happen that you started as a busboy and then you opened you opened your first restaurant, Yoleli, in Brooklyn in 2001? Mm-hmm. How does one go from being a busboy to opening their own restaurant?
4: Well, from being a busboy, but being also very interested into food. Coming from Senegal, I really, we, we are a food culture, a strong food culture in Senegal. So I was always, always interested into food. Only I couldn't, even dream of food as a career because in Senegal, food is a gender-based activity. So men, boys are not allowed in the kitchen.
3: Is that still the case?
4: Well, it's changing now. You have lots of uh, male... Chefs are interested in cooking, but it's still very, you know, strongly gender-based still, you know, still you see that. But it's less shocking now to see men cooking, men are cooking, you know, it's been 2017. And that's
3: interesting because it's always been the opposite here and it's only now just starting to change. That's right. Was that surprising for you to see that
4: dynamic? that's where I was getting, you know, so I was in Senegal and uh, not knowing that men could be in the kitchen Mm. until I'm here in New York City and there's only men in that kitchen. The, the the thing that attracted me the, best, the most out of it was that these men were doing some really beautiful food, beautiful plating. And that reminded me of one of my favorite pastime growing up in Senegal was to go through my mother's cookbook collection and mm. looking at the pictures. The pictures were just exactly what these guys at Garvin's were doing. And the, the chef, Billy, I think he... He noticed how I was, you know, I was bringing the plates, the dirty plates back in the kitchen, and then I would stay in the kitchen and look at these guys plating. <laughs> and he thought I was like just uh, natural, and I, would, yeah. I was into this. You know, he saw this little kid from Africa and just said, come and I'll take you under my wing. And he did take me under his wing, and but started from scratch. Dishwasher from Busboy, and I was doing dishwashing shifts. You know, I was, to me, in my head, I was like an extra income, know, I'm gonna save enough money and go to Ohio. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, I was every still, person's
3: every New Yorker's dream. Every dreams. New Yorker's <laughs> dream. You know, this, the cowboy's
4: dream for real. It was like I was really you know, I was pursuing this thing. I mean and and then, you know, and then I, I was just into this kitchen thing now. It's like I mean dishwashing, I hated every moment of it, but mm-hmm. I I did it right until I grew to be a prep. And from the prep, I grew to be a garde-manger, and garde-manger I had like the, the the grill station, from the grill station. I mean, I went through different stations until I left Garvin's to go through another restaurant that was opening at the time in the, by the Hudson River, actually, it was called Amazon. Just, it was opening for the summer, and they needed, um, you know, sous chefs, a line of sous chefs, and that's when I applied, and I got hired, and after, that was like three years later. And, you know, it was a summer restaurant, but I realized that I was into this. And it was not, I was not going back into the the, the campus of, uh, of physics and chemistry. F- food was chemistry already, and right, I, I could yeah. connect with that. That was the type of chemistry I really uh, could connect with in a better way than the labs. So long,
3: Berea.
4: So long, uh, Berea. Uh, so <laughs>
3: So you do so much work now. I mean, you're, you're so many different things. You're a chef and you're a teacher and you're an educator and you do TED talks and so much of your work is about educating people about Senegalese food and what that means. Why is that so important to you to kind of carry your traditions and your heritage with you through, through the food that you cook here in the United States?
4: Well, it's important because especially here in New York, New York to me is like the, 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 the immigrant city, you know. It's like, and, and working in New York, over the years I started working in this restaurant in Soho and that, that kind of changed my, my complete path because before that I worked after the American uh, at Garvin's, I worked at Ita- with Italians and I worked as French Bistro's Jean-Claude. And then I'm arriving at Boom, this place in Soho on Spring Street and the, the chef was doing what he would call global ethnic cuisine. And that was completely different. And he was getting inspiration from Southeast Asia and uh, some, some North Africans. Just amazing food that kind of reminded me of the food I was used to eating growing up in Senegal. Yeah,
3: all the crossovers. All
4: the crossovers. And I'm like, how come New York City don't have... African cuisine at the time there was no such thing as African cuisine in oh, New York. Oh, really? City. No, it's nothing, like nothing, nothing really. So you know, and I and I knew African. I mean, I I knew we had good food. It, it, I grew up eating it, and <laughs> and it could be as as uh, same spot as as any great cuisine here in New York, great restaurants in New York City. So I started to focus on that, and boom, that restaurant gave me the opportunity because I became a chef de cuisine in the restaurant. The restaurant um, did, was doing really well, and they opened a couple of locations—one in the Hamptons and one in South Beach, Miami. So I was sent in South Beach to open that restaurant as a chef, and that's in South Beach that I started to implement slowly, like African uh, dishes in the in the menu, and the reaction was just awesome. People were like, you know, we we had great reviews, and um, and that inspired me to keep on. Getting inspiration from that cuisine, I would call my mom and I would get recipes and I would start writing them down. Do and you
3: remember what, some of those recipes?
4: Well, the first time I served Senegalese cuisine in the restaurant was uh, peanut sauce. Actually, it was a vegetarian peanut mafé. So peanut sauce, typical, not only Senegalese but you see it throughout West Africa. So uh, like uh, really thick, different than the satay sauce. It's like uh, really a sauce that comes like in a stew. It could come with lamb or or chicken, but uh, that day I served it with with vegetables. And uh, and a food critic happened to be at the restaurant that day. Oh, <laughs> a typical story, right? Yeah, it's like my 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 life in New York could be a movie, I guess. <laughs> I would love to see that movie. Yeah, yeah, sure, someday. <laughs> um, but uh, but that's how that's how I started So that was the dish. But then over over the the years, I've accumulated recipes, and I realized that I had potential cookbook there. You know. Mm and that was my first cookbook, Yolele. After uh, uh, assembling the recipes, I found this great publisher, Lake Isle Press, who totally saw the potential, even though African cuisine, there was no such thing as African cuisine in the bookstores here. It was mostly like all these other cuisines. So they followed, They believed in it, and I had this uh, great friend and photographer, Adam Bartos, who came to Senegal with me a couple of times, and we, we, we finished this cookbook, and uh, the cookbook led to... The restaurant, the restaurant led to another restaurant and another cookbook and, and everything I'm doing now. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Did you have any of your mother's recipes in that book?
4: Oh, yeah. Not only I had <laughs> her recipes, I had my mother's recipes, I oh. had aunt's recipes, grandmother's. As a matter of fact, if you see Your Lily, the first cookbook, is photos of food and photos of portraits of women. Because the the book was meant to be a, a tribute to the African women. It's like portraits of all the women of my family, really, like the oh, aunts beautiful. and the grandmothers. Because we went to the villages where my father is from and my mother's village. So it it's beautiful and colorful. And African women, they love to dress elegantly yeah, and colorfully. So, so uh, yeah, so it's it uh, yeah. makes it special.
3: Well, I know you mentioned you go back and forth a lot, and you're one of the causes, one of the many causes you champion is responsible tourism. Mm. What is What does that mean to you?
4: Well, responsible tourism is, to me, the kind of tourist who comes to to learn from a culture, you know, to, 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 to have a, a cultural experience. And uh, there are other ways, other type of tourists that you see who are not coming to, they're not bringing anything. For me, it has to be an exchange, you know. You're not only bringing, of course, you bring your currency, but you have to to, to to come with a, a respectful approach first of all a respectful approach to the culture you're visiting, and um, and 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 just the 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 kind there, there's there's a there's a, unfortunately in Africa you'd see it a lot you know you have a, the the type of tourism and I'm coming to food here where the tourist is not really even uh, uh exposed to 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 the cuisine the local cuisine you know and they would go to cities like dakar or lagos and they would just easily find french or italian or even chinese or japanese sushi before finding a traditional local african or even like not doesn't have to be traditional but african influenced restaurant you know, and uh, and and that's uh, to me that's not Tourism, you know, it's not traveling. If you're traveling, you don't even experience the food, the local food. You know, you're missing out on a big part of the culture because food is really where it begins. And and you know, visiting markets, you know, but some tourists just come and they stay in resorts. You know, and that's mm-hmm. that's you know can be anywhere. You know, it's like you're not even into that culture. You're not even visiting that country. You know, and also you have the worst parts, you know, those who are like sex predators. You have a lot of that in Africa. You know, you have like, you know, pedophiles and I mean, all those, you know, things that have none to do with the show, but that has to do with responsible tourism. And, and you see that we're not, only the one, not the only one having that problem. You have it in other parts of the world as well. But mm-hmm. it's very prominent in Africa.
3: How are you addressing those issues?
4: Well, it's different. there are different ways of addressing it. Uh, I talk about it whenever I get a chance. You know, I talk about it with uh, hospitality professionals, you know, to, to to bring that awareness. And to also just, like, uh, champion local food, you know, so that that's one way to, to do it. I've collaborated quite a few years with an organization called African Travel Association, and that's a group of, of tourism professionals from, like, from the airline industry to the hotel industry to the re- restaurant industry. And every year they would have, like, a... a Uh, like a forum in a city in Africa and that would be for me an opportunity to talk about promoting local cuisine and offering it to the the tourists and offering them that experience and and just giving them a whole whole package as opposed to just like letting the tour operators who don't even, oftentimes don't even have a connection with the, the culture or the country because they're from the West and they invested their money and they think they just can Come and offer an experience that's similar to the one they would offer to to you in Switzerland or something like that, and that's completely two different worlds, and that defeats the purpose. I think when you travel, you're traveling to 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 really, to, to to experience the, the culture and to travel. So that's one way of addressing it. I'm addressing it by also being here and 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 you know, representing my my culture in in uh, in New York City in the in America in the West in many ways through my food again it's through my my books you know my books are, are very much more than cookbooks they're not a collection of recipes they 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 they, 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 they give you the the like my last book is called from the source to the bowl you know the the source you know they, so i travel to the throughout the country and and meet producers and and give a voice to those producers so that the reader understands where that food is coming from it's not just the food a Picture of beautiful plates when it's finished, but before, what how did that plate come to be? Those ingredients, how did they get here? This fish, what's the fisherman's life? You know, and that, and doing that, I, I present this fisherman and I talk, he talks about his challenges. And and you in New York City reading it, you connect with that fisherman in Senegal, in Dakar, and you know that you know he's really stressed out because the way he had. Uh, he was used to have lots of fish. Senegal is like a, a fishing country by excellence, but it's, it's challenged now because, uh, you know, you have other bigger countries are coming right by water and they do illegal fishing and they rake the bottom of the ocean in a very, very unethical way, destroy, destroy the coral reef. And the fisherman in my cookbook, his name is Usman, is like completely desperate now. He's like, okay, I have to start thinking about... And know a new way of making a living and uh, that's another story now, but a new way of making a living for him is to be smuggling immigrants to Spain in those wooden canoes from Senegal to Spain. I mean, mind you, those guys they know the water, they're masters of the water but those canoes are not designed to go to Spain, you know Spain is like the closest coast in Europe for them and once they get to Spain they can enter and go wherever they want and people pay Lots of money to 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 take to risk their lives to to make it to Spain and and regardless of the the news that many people never make it, people drown. Still, people are willing to go, and this fisherman knows that by just making one trip with a full boat, he'll be making enough money, more money than he would have made in the whole life, it whole year of fishing. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a, you know that's the kind of information you would get in. Reading my cookbook, you know, you would get recipes around the fish that he he, he caught, but more than that, you would have in-depth information about yeah. the lifestyle. Yes. Yeah.
3: I mean, do you ever feel torn to go back, or do you just feel like there's so much more you can do here, just kind of shining a light on stories like the one you just shared?
4: Well, I, I feel I feel like uh, I. To me, ideal it would be to, to, to be in both places, clone myself, right? <laughs> but I do I do feel yeah, I need to go back. I do go back quite often. Actually, I go back four or five times a year for short trips, but I do go back. But um, I, to me, I would love to spend half my life there, half life here. When it's cold here, I hate the cold. When it's cold here, I'll yeah. be in Senegal and then and then back in New York, because I love New York. I yeah. mean, Dakar is a fundamental place for me, but New York is really the city where I lived the most of my life. and So I'm, I'm as much of New York as I'm from a Dakar.
3: And a little bit of Berea.
4: A little bit of Berea. <laughs> <laughs>
3: like... We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Chef Pierre Chiam.
1: Made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradio.network.org/pets.
3: You're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been in studio chatting with my most lovely guest, Chef Pierre Chiem, who is uh, from Senegal. Chef, you're someone who, in almost every sense of the word, just you embodied kind of the American dream. You know, you came to the United States as an immigrant. You started as a busboy in a restaurant, and you worked your way all the way up how do you feel now, as someone who's been living here, you know, for a long time, to, but you know, still very much identify as someone who is from Senegal, um, kind of witnessing what's happening with all of the anti-immigration sentiment coming from the top, like especially towards DACA recipients, like people like you who came here at kind of a young age and are, are just trying to make it.
4: Wow, well, it's um, I don't even know what words could just express uh, this feeling It is it, really uh, coming from a place where I was there, you know, I was mm-hmm. there. I, right. I was, you know, I came here with, a, like I say, with a student visa, but then I didn't make it to school. Then my status has changed and I was illegal. I was one of those illegal immigrants. And, and, uh, and New York never made me feel like this. Mm. You know? At the time, I was illegal, but I could function. I could make a honest living. I was paying taxes at some point. I was able to get a restaurant to sponsor me for halfway through, you know. And uh, and then I got lucky because I won the green card. Dream life, right? Oh, wow. I won the green card. You've yeah.
3: had so much, I mean, <laughs> so, so incredible circumstances. It's so movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I hope like there's, <laughs> there's movie producers listening to the
4: show right now. <laughs> hey, hey, yeah, okay. You get a percentage. <laughs>
3: In in only in the in the sense that you've had such incredible luck that there just might be that person listening. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> if it were to happen, it would be because of you.
4: <laughs> be Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, of course, he's a fan. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's what happened. I I won the green card by just putting my name. At the time, it was so easy to you 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 put your name, your address, your country of origin. And in an envelope, and you send it something like this, something as simple as that. And then a month or two later, I received this big envelope saying congratulations. <laughs> the golden yeah. ticket. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't even need the restaurant to sponsor me for my working permit anymore. I have. And the timing was perfect. Cause, um, the restaurant actually, the timing was, couldn't be better because the restaurant was growing. That was boom already. And uh, we were invited to an event in Italy, actually, to do an event. I was connected with Slow Food. Slow Food was just starting at the time, and they had somehow invited us. I don't know how we got selected. Us and and another chef in Miami. And we were going to do a dinner for the media at a place... Uh, It was Slow Food, but it wasn't really Slow Food event. It was a a wine fair called Vinitalia in Verona. Mm. And uh, I wouldn't be able to go if I didn't have a green card, because even the work permit wasn't allowing me to do that. And uh, so... You know I got my green card, and then two weeks later, I was my way to Italy returned from Italy the following months. I went to Senegal first time in seven years yeah. so um so I stayed seven years before I was able to go back to Senegal. I've seen people who stayed even longer twenty plus years and who haven't made it back to their country and uh, and those people who are there at the time. It was okay because there was still some hope there was not like that, that feeling that you get now I mean like the, where the, the head of the country himself is like just targeting you yeah. you know so uh, you know at the time we didn't have that we had we felt support we knew that we were playing a role in the economy and it was made clear by definitely New York City the, 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 the government, the, the, the mayor was all supportive of like immigrants and and facilitating our you know our uh, legalization so here you don't feel that anymore and uh, and I think it eventually it's going to backfire if this continues because immigrants play play a major role in in cities like New York City but at large in the United States immigrants contribution is immense you mm-hmm. know and uh, people are being blind to this today it's unfortunate
3: well you're a prime example of the just invaluable com- contributions that people from all over the world are making once they, they come here um speaking of one of the many things that you're doing, uh, I watched a TED talk that you gave, which was really incredible about fonio, which is a it's an ancient grain it's indigenous to the part of Africa and Senegal that you come from.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Can you tell us what that is why you why you chose to give a TED talk about it?
4: Uh, why well, I chose to give a TED talk about it is uh, one of the many hats I wear is I studied a line of products and uh, to me, uh, I always wanted to as you so in the TED talk, I always wanted to to contribute. You know, not just come and, and take. You know, and I think that's what all immigrants, at in general, do. They they take and they receive. They receive and they give too. You know, so so for me, uh, contribution was okay. I wanted to start a line of products. I'm about food. I wanted to introduce this food culture which is mine. That's why I wrote those books. That's why I opened the restaurants. And now I want to reach a, 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 a wider audience. And by doing so, if I could introduce products, the way we're eating our food culture. And for you, this grain is like the first step, the entryway to that. But the dream is to really introduce an African pantry to, 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 to this world, to America. And uh, fonio, why fonio? Because fonio, fonio has it all for it. You know, it's like it's a typical ingredient that uh, conscious consumers in this part of the world are 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 hip to. You know, it's (laughs) gluten free, it's it's protein rich, it's delicious, it cooks fast, it's versatile. You can do so many things with it you know, turn it into flour, then pasta, I make salads with it, you know, the, and, and it's just delicious. You know, And I like
3: that you said in the TED Talk, it's easier to say than quinoa.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it is easier to say than quinoa. It is, yeah. And quinoa is doing all that, you know. Quinoa is so, doing great. <laughs> out, well, quinoa is the inspiration here. So, yeah. you know, so we're we, 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 we bracing and we're we fighting to, to take fonio to that level. Yeah. For, for, for many reasons, you know, the impact, that the the success of fonio would have in the communities back home. So again, you know, it's like bringing here, but also bringing back home. You know, the, the communities that grow fonio are the poorest in West Africa. In the, it's, they grow fonio grows in poor soil. It's like a, 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 a drought-resistant grain that that grows really fast. That matures like in two months. So it's it's quite a, a, an amazing grain, a miracle grain in a way. You know. Culturally too, fonio is uh, is very, very important in the communities that grow it. You know, like growing up in Senegal, you know, in the south of Senegal where my parents are from, you know, there is a belief that when you grow fonio in your backyard, you know, it protects you from the evil eye. So, mm. it's, and and kids sometimes I even put some fonio grains into their school bags for that same reason. Um, again, I, I mentioned in the TED talk about how archaeologists have discovered fonio. In burial grounds in ancient Egypt, so even ancient Egyptians would go to the afterlife with fonio grains. So, in in many cultures, fonio in West Africa and in parts of Africa where it was consumed, fonio is more than just a a food ingredient; it's an ingredient that has um, um, miracle properties.
3: But the goal is to start exporting it. The goal is to
4: start exporting it. And we have started exporting it already. So, Fonio actually is available at Whole Food Harlem today. And uh, we are setting the marketing campaign to expand in the northeast region of of Whole Foods in 40 stores. Wow. And uh, we are at Amazon since two days ago now. So Fonio is is exported. uh, And that's
3: important because it's supporting farmers. It's supporting people who are, I guess, operating the Fonio mills back in Senegal. It's creating jobs.
4: Exactly, exactly. It's It's improving
3: the agriculture by growing it in the sufficient way.
4: Yep, yep. And uh, and also... uh, climate change mitigation as well, Mm. because it's growing in the desert in the south of the Sahara, so it's the only grain that, one of the rare grains that can grow there, it not only grows there, it thrives there, you know, it's just just a, uh, um, so that's why we're importing it in in collaboration with communities, you know, it's like a fair trade deal, it's not just like a private thing, so we, we improve those lives by opening markets to them, and markets that are just completely unreachable before. So
3: we want to go to Whole Foods and buy Fonio. We
4: want to go to Whole Foods and buy Yolele Fonio. Yo Yo Lele. Lele. Oh, like your cookbook. Absolutely. Yolele, yeah.
3: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um one thing that kind of stuck with me though when during the TED talk is you you, you spoke about how some Senegalese people were sort of resistant. To the idea of promoting it, because there's this kind of stigma attached to like homegrown grown crops not being as appealing as ones that might be coming from the Western world.
4: Yeah, yeah, those are the the uh, sequels of colonialism. Mm. I mean, unfortunately, we still have uh, that mentality. And uh, cities like Dakar, you wouldn't find, or you can find, but it's difficult to find fonio because the Dakar people are, you know westernized, you know, and they they, they look down. We still import our rice, you know, and uh, we have local rice, but uh, people resist the local rice. And
3: perfect conditions for growing it, yeah.
4: Perfect conditions for growing it, and we have other grains millet, which is another great grain you know, fonio, sorghum, you know those grains are there, but you only see them consumed in the country Mm. you know and and at dakar the city people they look at them as like country people grains country people food you know it's like and and we eat croissants and baguettes we don't grow wheat in senegal but we make great baguette bread every day senegalese eat baguettes, at least for breakfast every day i mean there's like millions of tons of Yeah, that flour, was leftover which,
3: shades of the, of the French colonization.
4: Exactly, exactly. So that's hmm. uh, that's that mentality that yeah. we, we have to fight. That's the challenge, you know, so bringing Well, Fon- I so
3: admire what you're doing to change that.
4: Thank you. <laughs> and Thank I you. will
3: buy all the Fonio. <laughs>
2: Great.
3: <laughs> and tell my friends. Please. Um, so tell us where we, can, we, where we can keep in touch with you, learn about going on your trips to Senegal that you lead, mm-hmm. learn about your catering company. Where can we keep in touch, keep tabs on you?
4: Uh well there's many ways. Uh my I have a website, my first and last name, pierrecham.com M- uh, My uh food brand's called Yolele. So we have a website for that too, Yolelefoods.com. Yolele is Y O L E L E Foods dot com. And uh, there you can get all the information on where to get fonio, how to cook fonio, recipes and everything. On my website I'll give you all the information about my upcoming trips, the the the, the culinary tour that we are doing again. We studied the tradition in collaboration with Boston University. There's a West African Research Center that's in, uh, affiliated to Boston University. And every year now we're taking a group to Senegal on a culinary tour from February 1st to February 10th. And I hope you can join us. It's going to be an amazing <laughs> tour. We, we travel. Not only we, we go to the source, we meet with fishermen, we follow... How the fish is being transformed, you know, the conch, how the conch is being fermented. You saw you see all these things, how the smoked fish the fish is being smoked traditionally by the water. We have this this sardine looking fish, you know, that we call Yaboy and we or, or ketchup. And, and we smoke it by the water. And it's just an amazing experience. And we spend time with women processing grains like fonio or millet and turning it into couscous or, and cooking and eating, of course, and visiting a lot of markets. And, and it's just like overall great experience. It
3: sounds amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chef, for coming on the show. It was such an absolute delight to have you. Thank you out there for listening. We'll see you next week. Same time, heritageradionetwork.org.